The Wiser Podcast, conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cizwe Mpofu-Walsh, a postdoctoral fellow at Wiser. Welcome to The Wiser Podcast. Shoni Pamukwena is associate professor at Wiser. She's the author of Magema Fuse, The Making of a Kolwa Intellectual, and has a strong research interest in South African intellectual history. For a picture of the average Zulu policeman at Johannesburg, I would depict this a creature, giant-like and large as to proportions, ferocious and forbidding of aspect, most callously brutal of action, and irredeemably ignorant. The knowledge that it is but necessary to call attention of the higher police officials to this matter to obtain remedy induces me to devote a short chapter to the subject in the sincere belief and hope that it will not be in vain. These are the words of Saul Blaiki, one of the leading lights of the African literati of the 19th century, published in 1911 in the newspaper Pretoria News. His chagrin at the ineptitude of the Zulu policemen to deal with gang violence was not the first nor the last instance in which a member of the African elite objected to the presence of Zulu policemen in urban areas. Plaiki's words were the initial starting point of my project, since I wanted to explore and understand this obvious antipathy between the African elite and African policemen. Soon enough, I discovered that this would be a singularly one-sided research project, since the African elite were voluble, literate, and had access to newspapers in which to publish their opinions. The African policemen, on the other hand, were mostly silent, illiterate, and more often than not anonymous. Based on a hunch and a handful of black and white images, I went in search of the visual archive of African policemen to supplement what I viewed as a skewed historical record that amplified the complaints of the elite while ignoring the lives and opinions of African policemen. The first disappointment was my discovery that the military and police didn't, in fact, have an already existing archive of African men in service. The Zulu policemen, I soon found out, was a genre that was created mostly by photographers, not by the military or the police. Secondly, I discovered the contours of what I am calling intimate colonialism, since many of the images of African policemen that I was finding and continue to find were in the albums of white families rather than in the records of the military and the police. The sense of the Zulu policeman as a kind of carte de visite who could be inserted into the intimate space of a family album opened a whole vein of sentiment and valorization, which I had not expected. Military officers, colonial officials, magistrates, and the occasional housewife could be found giving vivid and animated accounts of what African men inside and outside the military and the police wore in the place of a uniform. This podcast is about this alternative textual archive of African men in military and police dress. However, I should also add that many of these descriptions contain the racial pejoratives that were used at the time to refer to people of color, and the sensitive listener may be offended by these terms. 
Soon after realizing that the Zulu policeman was an elusive visual subject, and after my first encounter with the photograph of a Zulu policeman who was given the nondescript name Sergeant X, I stumbled upon other surprising facts about the history of policing in South Africa. First, the line between policing and criminality was always blurred. In the Cape Colony, for instance, the work of firemen was at first done by convicted prisoners. From the beginning, there was very little distinction between firemen, watchmen, soldier, and policemen. The police and the, and the military have therefore always had a recruitment problem. Secondly, there was always uncertainty about the, the appropriate name for the men of color who were performing the duties of war work, surveillance, and law enforcement. The fudged categories created by this uncertainty mean that terms such as commando, levy, irregular, and achterreier are often masks that hide the racial, ethnic, and class foundations of war work in colonial South Africa. I should emphasize that in this podcast, I will repeatedly use the term war work since it highlights the careering aspect of colonial warfare while also hinting at the many occupations that often accompanied the military expansion and reach of colonial domination. My third discovery was that as a matter of policy and practice, these fighting men were not granted the same privileges as their white counterparts. From diet to dress, men of color were regarded as soldiers of fortune, even while they exposed themselves to the same dangers as their white officers. I discovered that what separates the irregular from the officer is mainly class and status. Officers are salaried, irregulars are not. Officers have rank, irregulars do not. Officers wear uniforms, irregulars do not. War work was therefore work that was done for bounty, booty, and hard cash. The fourth surprise that awaited me in the archives was that the military and the police were indistinguishable at least from the perspective of conscripted African men. And many of the duties that they were expected to carry out were just plain plunder and pillage, masquerading as law enforcement. The fifth surprise was that the public has never warmed to the idea of policing. At its creation, the corps that became the mounted police of Natal couldn't find enough suitable candidates to recruit and the uniform chosen smelt so bad that these men were nicknamed the snuffs. This public relations problem is one of the reasons why the African elite resented any physical contact with policemen, especially the Zulu ones. Reconstructing the lives of African soldiers and policemen has been one of the main challenges I have faced in my attempts to interpret the images that they have left behind. One of the useful sources I have relied on are the memoirs of white officers who seem to have been fascinated by the sartorial choices of their black and brown underlings. The character sketches drawn from these sources point to a bevy of charismatic and colorful personalities whom I have described as frontier dandies. For this podcast, I have chosen to give brief biographies of two such fighting men. Neither of these, 
of these two was photographed. And so the only accounts we have of each come from the officer's memoirs. The first character is introduced by a British officer and mercenary called Stephen Bartlett Lakeman. He wrote, Johnny Fingo, in his haste to shoot these poor devils, whom he, we had stealthily crept upon, having seen their campfire a long way off, forgot to put a cap on his rifle. And as the gun only snapped fire as he pulled the trigger some three or four feet from the head of one of the disputing marauders, he received in return a lounge from an assegai through his thigh. The rest jumped suddenly up and an indiscriminate melee took place. Poor Dix received a fearful crack on the skull from a knobgiri. He was never perfectly right afterwards. Johnny Fingo got another stab in the legs, and what affected him still more, his beautiful Wesley Richards double-barrel rifle, which he had obtained, heaven knows how, was irretrievably damaged. As might be surmised from this description, the name Johnny Fingo is a hybrid. Johnny was a British slang word for a policeman, and Fingo was the colonial approximation of the word Mfengu. Johnny Fingo's weapon of choice, the Wesley Richards, was at the time probably ornately decorated with silver embossing along the length of the rifle. The company Wesley Richards is still in existence and still produces guns and rifles. The main reason for Lakeman's admiration of Johnny Fingo is that despite his injuries and despite his witnessing the use of the knobkiri on his fellow soldiers, on his fellow soldiers, his only concern is with his bent rifle. Lakeman stated, although badly wounded and unable to stand, he was bemoaning his broken rifle as it lay across his knees. He repeatedly asked me as to the possibility of getting the indented barrels of his rifle rebent to their original shape. Therefore, one can conclude that in his physical prowess and in his lamentations over his damaged Wesley Richards, Johnny Fingo was an archetype of the characteristics of an African mercenary the British preferred. Hardy, indestructible, and vaguely mysterious. In another description of Johnny Fingo, Lakeman makes the following statement. Johnny Fingo once presented himself before me in so calm and dignified a manner that he quite surprised me. And upon my asking him the nature of the business he came upon, he replied that he was the bearer of a communication from Sandili. No Roman presenting himself on the part of the Senate, bringing an offer of peace or war to a foreign potentate, could have done so with more calm assurance of the mighty import of his mission. The second fighting man whose compelling warring life is introduced to readers by William Ross King, a British officer, who served on the Eastern Cape frontier in the 1850s, is Vellum Eidhalder. King wrote, We could distinctly see through our glasses each part of their dress and accoutrement. Eidhalder wore the braided tattoo of a British staff officer, with a red stripe down the trousers, a red Morocco and gold sword belt, a cavalry sword and a straw hat with black crepe round it. His horse was held by an attendant a little in rear, and his secretary was seen busy writing in a little notebook. They were presently joined by several dotis, 
wearing the red coats of the unfortunate sappers killed on the Kunap Hill. The main difference between Johnny Fingo and Willem Eidhalder is that while the first could be identified as a Fingo, the latter was a Creole fighting man whose ambitions to create a nation would define his career as a charismatic and mercurial leader. Secondly, Eidhalder had some experience as an ally of the British and his prominence in the politics of Khoi nationalism reached its climax during the Fifth Frontier War of 1850 to 1853, when Khoi riflemen and fighters were called upon to hunt not just the combatants, but their kinfolk. Also, unlike Johnny Fingo, Eidhalder was clearly identifiable as a product of Christian conversion and the mission station. His story is that of many Khoi and Creole men who found themselves landless, despite either being the seons of landed men or being granted land by the British and then losing it. This deepened communal agrarian anxieties and led to an untenable animosity that divided the Xhosa against the Mfengu, the Khoi Khoi against the Xhosa and the Mfengu, and each group against its own. These cross-cutting lines of bad blood profited the British and made it possible for them to unscrupulously wage war, confiscate cattle, and reward their allies. As a frontier dandy, Vellum Eidhalder's life brings into intensely sharp focus the extent and tragedy of the confluence of multiple religious loyalties and how they shaped not just the private lives of converts, but the public image which they attempted to control in part through dress and self-curation. Not far behind the idea of self-making and the public performance of selfhood was the notion of manliness, which Aid Halder explicitly expressed in a letter written to the Chriqua leader Adam Koch. To Koch, he addressed the following words. Beloved, rise manfully and unanimously as a nation and children of one house to engage yourself in this important work a work which concerns your mother country, for not a single person of color, wherever he may be, will escape this law. This appeal to nationhood, mingled with ideas of manliness, to produce the ideological justification that Eidhalder needed to create a charismatic persona, which also involved grandiose rituals of power and authority. Eidhalder is reported to have had his dinner served by servants wearing white gloves, and he used an amanuensis who recorded his words and the codified laws that governed his followers. In the eyes of the settler historian George McCall Thiel, Eight Halder was not only a turncoat, but Thiel is at pains to point out that he had begun his career in the Cape Mounted Corps. Among the prisoners from the Cape Mounted Riflemen, there was a man named Willem Eight Halder, who was possessed of considerable ability and great ambition. He had no wrongs to avenge, but he had conceived an idea of the formation of an independent Hottentot nation with himself as its head. Such a result could only be attained by rebellion and alliance with the Gaffers. This man was chosen as their leader by the rebel Hottentots and round him soon rallied over a thousand of their people, all of whom were accustomed to the use of firearms. 
Although there are more sources on Aid Halder than on Johnny Fingo, both men represent the three or so themes of this podcast. Firstly, both men represent the argument that war work was a career and that black and brown men were recruited to fight as soldiers of fortune. Secondly, that in the place of a uniform, these men curated their own images using the decommissioned uniforms and weapons that drifted to South Africa from other parts of the world. Thirdly, that for Creole men like Aid Halder, religion, especially a militant version of Christian theology, inspired not just their lives as mercenaries, but also their decision to betray their loyalties to the British. As contemporary debates on policing and police brutality take center stage, it is important to remember the first point made in this podcast, namely that the line between policing and criminality has always been blurred. In the case of South Africa, two contemporary examples will suffice to reinforce the point. Andre Stander was the son of a policeman, and he himself became a policeman. Between 1977 and 1980, Stander became a bank robber and gang leader. His criminal career ended in 1984 when he was shot while on the run in Florida, USA. The second example is Nongoloza Matebula, who was the founding father of the 19th century bandits who, was, who were known as the regiments of the hill, Umkosi Wezindaba. He organized his criminal gang using military discipline and military ranks. His members also established themselves in prisons and thus was born South Africa's prison gangs, which are still in existence. At some point in his criminal career, Matebula turned and became a prison warden and was also given the task of crushing the very prison gangs he was responsible for creating. To conclude, the careers of black and brown men in the police and the military reveal the contradictory nature of war work. While these men were clearly recruited to kill and plunder, their sartorial choices show that they were often aware of their status and therefore dressed for the jobs that they wanted rather than the ones that they had. Clothing, therefore, functions as an apt metaphor for the vivid and intriguing personalities that they created out of their fighting careers and the improvised manner in which the military and police tried to harness their masculinity and swagger. Mm -hmm.